so today, you know, as we're in this Advent sermon, uh, talking about all things Christmas and the birth of Christ, I actually wanted to back up a little bit and follow up with you guys about Thanksgiving, because I know the last time I preached, I talked about how I was going to Los Angeles to see my family without my wife, Dury. It was the first time I was going to uh, travel with my two boys alone. And uh, I was really, really uh, nervous about it, but I wanted to let you guys know that everything that I said about a single man traveling alone with young children is true. It's still true. I, got, I was allowed to cut basically in every line that I, um, that I was faced with. People were literally taking my bags and tagging them for me. Uh, McDonald's gave me free food. The flight attendants on the plane basically offered me anything that I wanted at no cost. I, I, I actually had a bag of food to carry off of the plane with me. And so it was great in a lot of ways. It was great. So, but I do want to remind you that people are a lot more uh, compassionate towards dads when they travel alone. So if you happen to tra- be traveling this season, which I know a lot of us are, and you see a mother who's traveling alone with her kids, uh, I'd really challenge you guys to encourage her, try to lend her a helping hand. This, the dad that you think is in need of great help, he probably is getting a lot of help already. Uh, so let's try to show some more love to the mothers, unless you're on the flight where I'm on, and then please continue to be gracious and compassionate to the fathers. Um, but, um, but that was my uh, Thanksgiving. We were in L- L.A., and um, my wife wasn't there, so it was kind of dad's rules. They're different than mom's rules. And... Um, you know, we, we were, we were, me and my two boys, we were in the same hotel room, obviously, and one of the things I decided to let them do is I was like, okay, well, you guys can fall asleep to the TV. Because we're on vacation, right? And, you know, if you have cable TV or whatever, you know that they're constantly playing these Christmas movies now. And so at like 8 o'clock when the boys are supposed to be going to bed, I'd be like, okay, we'll just turn on a Christmas movie and you guys can just fall asleep to the movie. Just, don't expect this at home, but... While dad is here and mom is away, you know, you guys can play at bedtime. And um, so it was, uh, it was Home Alone, which is a classic. How many of you guys have seen it? Oh my gosh, a lot of you. And so, um, so, we turn, so I turn on the movie and I'm like, just, we'll just fall asleep to it. Matthew, my two-year-old, is just out in five minutes. Full day running around with the older cousins, he's exhausted. Me, you know, like the dad, I was asleep probably in 15 minutes. At 11.30, like, I woke up and I saw Isaiah, my seven-year-old, wandering around the room trying to find the remote to turn off the TV. And um, it was just a great time because, like, some of these Christmas movies are such classics. They're such, they have such great meaning and significance to us. But the thing that I realized, and I, and I watched Home Alone, Home Alone 2, and It's a Wonderful Life, the thing that I realized is that a lot of these Christmas movies, they actually share a lot in common, don't they? Like there's some kind of conflict that threatens the cohesiveness or the togetherness of the family, and somehow uh, the plot of the movie plays out, and at the, end of the meeting, at the end of the movie, happiness is restored, the family is gathered together again, they embrace each other, you, they might crowd around a table, but they celebrate because they are together again. And these movies are all about love and acceptance and family and home. Even a Christmas movie like Die Hard, if you think about it, it's like he's going home to, I think, see his family. Then this terrible thing happens. At the end, he's reunited with his family. And family, acceptance, home, love, don't we all long for these things? Right? That's the reason why so many of you guys have booked travel arrangements at one of the most expensive times of the year is to go home, whatever that means to you, to go see your family, to go 
be with your loved ones. All of us want to experience that, especially perhaps at no time more than right now during this Christmas season. But as much as we long for love, how much do we actually experience it? You know, why are we often so hopeful going into this Christmas season, and why do we so often leave it so utterly disappointed? See, if this desire for love drives uh, why we buy all these Christmas gifts, why we spend money on flights and hotels, why we sacrifice our vacation days to see our loved ones, why do the times with our family and loved ones really never turn out exactly how we had hoped? Why does that one family member who annoys us and rubs us the wrong way, even when we think and we prepare ourselves, we're like, this year is going to be different. I'm going to love that person. I'm going to be patient with that person. Why does year after year that same person annoy us and frustrate us, rub us the wrong way? If you're lucky enough not to have a family member like that in your immediate family, then believe me, soon enough, one of your siblings will marry that person. (laughs) I hope my in-laws are not listening to this. The question then becomes, if we were designed for love, right? so much so that we seek it amongst the brokenness of this world, why does love still elude us? You see, this passage today is, that we read is from 1 John, and uh, we're actually going to go look at more of the passage that was read, but it's, it's one of my favorite books in all the Bible when it comes to love. When my wife, Dury, and I were married, we had a passage from 1 John read at our wedding. I don't think they're here today, but Maggie and Albert, Kirk and Christine, when I officiate their weddings, 1 John. Because this passage is all about love, love, love. John's theme that goes throughout this whole book is be unified. Love one another the way that Christ has loved you. And if you were to continue to read this letter, in the next chapter you would read John saying these words, God is love. Not that God has a lot of love, not that God could love you, but it says that God is love. It's who he is. And John says that if God is love and if we, know, if we are to know that we have experienced God and his love, then we will naturally, then we will have to, then we ought to love one another. And that's how today's passage that we're going to talk about, we're actually going to go back to uh, verse 11. And he writes this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You've heard it from the beginning. This is nothing new. We're going back to Christianity or God's love 101. In the the, uh, Gospel of John, he quotes Jesus as saying this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And this is the thing, whether or not you believe in Jesus, whether or not you call yourself a Christian today, most people would agree that we should love one another. 
That's, the, that's what we should do. It's why we hear all these songs on the radio about love, love, and love. It's why we watch these romantic comedies. It's why we read these books. It's because we all want to believe in love because we think it's the right way that this world should operate. But the question becomes, what does it actually look like to love somebody? What does that mean? We so often, so flippantly use this word love that I love cheeseburgers or I love Jenny's ice cream. I love that TV show or I love lamp. But what does it actually mean to love someone? And what are we to do when someone is difficult to love? How do we respond to this commandment from Christ to love one another when we're not all that good at loving people? So today we'll see three truths from love from this text. Uh, We'll look at the world's love, the offering of Cain. Look at God's love for us, the gift of Jesus. And we will ask ourselves, how then shall we love the, an offering or a gift? Okay, so, so, so John starts by talking about the world's love through the offering of Cain. He writes in verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And for those of you who don't know, I'm just going to read from Genesis 4 to keep, catch you up. This is right after the fall of man. It's after man sinned against God, right? Eve and Adam took from the tree of light and they ate that apple, right? And, 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 and again, I don't think, I don't believe that that's the original sin. I believe the original sin is when Eve, when the serpent speaks to Eve and she says, well, you won't die when you eat that apple. The reason why God doesn't want you to eat that apple is because you'll become like him and you'll know the difference between good and evil. And the sin is that Eve believed that and she actually thinks that God is holding out on her. She thinks about God not as a loving provider, the creator of all things. She thinks that God has what could make her happy, what could make her more whole, what could make her complete, and God is denying her that. So she takes. She takes and eats. And Cain and Abel are her sons. And we'll see how that sin is transferred to them. In Genesis 4, it says this, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and other fat portions. So far, everything's good. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're making offerings to God. One dude tends sheep, livestock. The other dude grows plants, and they're both offering to, they're placing an offering before God. And this is where it gets hairy. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So I, I always kind of thought that Cain got a raw deal. Right, like one guy grows animal, the other guy grows plants. They both do the right thing, and God's just like, I receive this offering. I have favor on this offering and not of Cain's offering. It's like, does God have something against vegetables? And everything starts to unravel. Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And then says Cain kind of tricked his brother Abel and he murdered him. He killed him. And what I want you guys to see is how, like God said, sin is crouching at his door. Eve and Adam thought that God was holding out on them, so they took. They took. Cain is looking for approval or favor or acceptance before God, so he gives. He gives because he thinks God is holding out on him, and he thinks that's the way that he can receive that thing. If you look at today's passage, right, It kind of speaks more to this. It reads this, And why did he murder him? Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. His own deeds were evil. John is not talking about the murder here. Obviously that was evil. John is saying that Cain's offering was evil. Cain, see, the offering doesn't look evil on the surface. His offering was costly to him. It was the best of his crop. But what God is saying is that I see beneath that. And we can see by the way that he responded when he didn't get what he was wanting, that there was a sinful evil behind that offering. See, Cain didn't give his offering to bless God. He gave his offering to bless himself. He didn't give his offering because he wanted to worship God. Cain gave his offering because there was something in it for him. He wanted God's approval. He wanted God to be impressed. He wanted God to declare that he was pleased with him and that he was righteous before him. Cain's offering had less to say about the value of God and more about the way that he valued himself. But when Cain didn't receive what he expected from God, it drove him towards anger and jealousy and insecurity, so much so that he murdered his brother. So why does John bring up Cain and his offering and jealousy and hate and even murder in a passage when he's talking about love? Well, this we know. It's not random. There's a reason why John brings this story up about Cain and his offering, and it's this. John brings up Cain and his offering because this is the way that the world loves. Cain's offering and worldly love are not a selfless expression of care and affection. They are a selfish way of getting what you want from people. It's a way to bind the will of somebody else to your will and what you want. It's quid quo pro. It's tit for tat. It's all give now so that I can take later. It's all scratch your back so that you'll feel inclined to scratch mine. It's less about giving and it's more about what you're going to get. I I saw this play out in my family. Uh, Tomorrow is my son Matthew's birthday. He's turning two. And, uh, you know, I think Wednesday night I was driving back uh, home with Isaiah, my seven-year-old. I was telling him about the plans for the weekend, how we're going to celebrate his birthday. And Isaiah was like, I want to go to Target. I want to go to the Disney store. I want to buy a present for my brother. And he was thinking about making a craft. He was thinking about trying to make like a fruit salad and shape it like a fire truck. He had all these ideas about how he was going to, what he was going to give to his younger brother to celebrate his birthday. 
But we were kind of running behind, and it was getting kind of late, and we had to get home and eat dinner, and they're still kind of on California time, so, um, so we didn't. We got home, and I was like, Isaiah, just sit down and eat. We'll figure it out tomorrow. And Isaiah sat down at the table, and then he just broke down. Which is weird, because if you know Isaiah, he's a pretty happy kid. He's not that emotional. And we were just shocked. He just broke down, weeping. And I went over to, and during, during my wife and I ran over to her, like, Isaiah, what's wrong? And he said this to us. Matthew is going to think that I'm a bad brother. If I don't have a gift for him, he's going to think that I'm a bad brother. And it shocked me because we've never taught that to him. Never once has he ever given me anything and I've said, now I know that you're a good son. It's not something that he learned. It's something that was just in his nature. There's something in him that says that giving a gift to another person will reinforce the image or the person or the identity that he wants for himself. What affected Cain affects my son. And what affected Cain affects all of us because when we even give gifts, even when we're generous, generous, when we love other people, it's more about us than the other person. Worldly love tells us to be kind, to be generous, and to be loving because of what it will say about us or what it will do for us. Another example is Christmas cards. Yesterday, Jeremy, one of the members of our church, I, I asked him like on Friday night, I said, hey, what are you doing tomorrow morning? He's like, I don't know. I was like, can you come and take pictures of me and my family? Because we're really late on these Christmas cards. But if, you know, most of you guys are younger, maybe you don't send out Christmas cards, but you have to understand the whole thing about Christmas cards is just this act of reciprocity. We actually order extra Christmas cards to have on hand in case somebody unexpectedly sends us a Christmas card that we haven't sent one to. Because the idea is that if we are given something, we have to reciprocate. And the fact of the matter is, and maybe I wouldn't like to, maybe this is kind of shallow for me to confess, but if year after year you send someone a Christmas card and they never send you one back, at some point they get dropped from your Christmas card list. And even in Christmas cards, we're being like Cain in a way. You're giving because of what you expect to receive. And it's not just Christmas cards, but Christmas giving is another example of this worldly love. A lot of times we give gifts because of what it will say about us. It'll tell people that I'm generous, that I'm caring, that I'm thoughtful. Or because we want something from the other person. We want acknowledgement, better treatment, maybe a reciprocal gift. And that's why people's reaction to your gifts when you give it matters so much to you. And that's why you probably do not continue to year after year give gifts to people who never say thank you, who never acknowledge what you've given them, and never give you anything in return. It's why we get upset when that happens. And the question then is, what is the big deal, Brian? What's wrong with worldly love? What's wrong with loving people with expectations tied to your love? Because if you think about it, if you love this way, if you love only those people who love you back, if your love is based on conditions, then you won't get disappointed that much. You won't get hurt that much. Your love will never overextend you. 
You'll be guarded and protected in your love, and that could be a good thing. I'll point out two quick problems with this worldly love. The first is this. If you, will love people who are only, if you only love people who are good to you, you'll never be able to rest in that love. It's a cheap love. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5. He says, for, those, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? What does it matter if you just love people who are good to you? What does it matter if you're only affectionate or kind to people who are affectionate and kind to you? Honestly, even a dog does that. It doesn't say anything about you. It doesn't change anything about you. And this is the thing. If it's all based, if you only love people who love you back, and the people who love you will only love you if you love them back, then what happens when life puts you in a position that you cannot extend your love anymore? Because we all know that happens in life, right? There are times when you are so empty or dry or tired that you're just not capable of love. And if all of your love is based on reciprocity, then you will always be living in fear and insecurity that if you drop the ball, you will lose the love in your life. You cannot rest in a love like that. And here, kind of, I think, is the more important point. The second problem with worldly love is that worldly love quickly turns to hate. Uh, in verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world, what, hates you. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. But chill out, John. Why all this negative talk about hate and murder and anger and death in a passage about love? I'll tell you, this is why. Uh, recently, uh, we had our home painted. And I was really happy about that, not because I care about the scratches on the wall. I was really happy about that because some time ago, I don't know, Dury was like cutting some vegetables or some fruit or something in the kitchen, and she accidentally cut her finger. And somehow, some way, a single speck of her blood ended up on our kitchen ceiling. Just a little one. None that you would ever notice. Maybe you did and thought it was gross. I don't know. I was so relieved when our home got painted over because of this. If, God forbid, anything were to happen to my wife and she were to disappear, I didn't want to have to explain to the detectives why there was a spike of blood on my kitchen ceiling. Maybe I watched too much Forensic Files. Maybe you've watched CSAI, Law and Order. But time and time again, what is the answer to the question? When someone dies, is is murdered, or is assaulted, who is immediately the prime suspect? Spouse, their loved ones. Doesn't that tell you something about love in this world? That if someone is murdered, the immediate thought is, it's probably their spouse. And, and so are you really that shocked that Cain is so angry when his offering is rejected? So filled with anger and jealousy? Are you really that shocked that we'd actually kill his brother? Because when worldly love is unremitted, unremitted the, 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 the results are, are disastrous. The most vile, ugly, hateful sides of you come out. You know what people are really annoying? The people who are really annoying is when you say, I hate something, and they're like, you don't really hate it. 
you just strongly what? Dislike it. It's like, okay, whatever. Verbiage, uh, word cop. But this is the thing. This is the thing. You actually hate some things. There's some things in your life that the word hate is a better descriptor than strongly dislike. There are things in this world, there are things that happen to you, there are relationships in this world that if you could, you would wish them away from your memory. You would have them cease to exist. You wish they were just wiped from existence. Right? And I would bet, I would bet that those things in this world that you actually hate are things that you once loved. Right? If you've ever been dumped, you get it. Because that person, or, 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 or if you've ever gone through a divorce, because that person that you once loved so much, that one person who was once giving you everything that you wanted, they stop. Immediately you turn to hate. It's not just people or relationships, but it's basically everything in this world. Think about your jobs. There are people in this room who had jobs and they gave so much of themselves. They presented an offering of themselves to their jobs. He said, I'm going to give you my time and my effort. I'm going to sacrifice my weekends. I'm going to give you the best years of my life. And then they get fired or they get laid off. The job stops giving them what they thought they deserved. And boom, it's hate. And if I'm honest, church can be that way too. You look at sometimes in church conflict, you'll see the worst parts of people come out, ugliness and hate and contempt. And on the surface, like we're just talking about approving a budget to build a building. It's not life or death. But when that church stops giving them what they expected or think they deserve, all the love just so quickly turns to hate. And so that's why it's easy for us to relate to Cain and his offering because when we engage in worldly love, when you say to anything in this world, I'll give myself to you, but in return I expect to receive affirmation, validation, love, acceptance. When the world doesn't give you what you're so needy and begging for, that's when things get really ugly. When you don't get what you think you deserved or what you expected from someone that you loved, and you respond by hating them, when your jealousy and insecurity just take a hold, when you're so out of control that you would literally kill them, that's when you can relate to Canaan's offering, and that's when you can see the danger of worldly love. But the passage continues. God's love for us, the gift of Jesus, we see it in verse 16. If you can put up verse 16 and, and leave it up there, it reads this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And what John is saying is don't be like Cain, who when he made an offering to God did it because of what he thought he could get out of it. Don't love like the world does. 
It just leads to hate and death and murder. But John here is introducing another way. I want to stress this a lot. I'm going to ask him to leave this up because I think it's really important. The order that this verse is laid out, it has eternal implications for us. And if you're careful, you won't miss it because the difference between God's love and the world's love is subtle, but it's extremely significant. Because if you think about it, the world, the people in your lives, your job, every other religion, they say that if you're sinful, if you're broken, if you're a Cain-like person, then this is what they say. They rearrange that, that verse and they say this, we ought to lay down our lives so that by this we can know God's love. We ought to lay down our lives by this we could know God's love. It's saying to you, when you have been looking for love in all the wrong places, and when you haven't found what you're looking for, when you're disappointed, when you're rejected, when you're hurting, when you're starting to do things that you never thought you would do, when we respond with hatred and contempt, when we really are at our worst, every other religion will tell you that God rejects you when you are like that. Every other religion tells that if you want to get right with God, then you had better find a way to change your life, to clean yourself up, and to make yourself more presentable before him. And if you do a good enough job of it, then you can maybe experience God's love. But you see the trap here. If you just buy into what they're selling you, if you just try harder to, and you just try to do better, if you just deny yourself, if you're focused on fixing yourself first and then God will allow you to experience his love, if you're making an offering to God and then God will love you, it sounds just like what? It sounds like Cain and his offering. See, when we tie our devotion to God with expectations that God will reward us, when we feel entitled before God, when we feel like we deserve things from God, when we think that God owes us something, we should not be surprised when we respond like Cain, when those expectations are not met, and when we don't get what we think we deserve from God. Love, again, will quickly turn to anger and hate, even towards God himself. And maybe you're here today and you are angry at God. You tried to live a good life. You sacrificed. You presented an offering of a good, upright, devout life to God. But then something in your life happened where you felt like God didn't live up to his end of the bargain. Maybe you went through suffering. Maybe you suffered a great loss. And you feel like God did not receive your offering with favor. Or maybe you're here today and you found that love and acceptance and validation is just so hard to come by in this world. And all this talk about God somehow loving you is enough to make your head spin because you have tried so hard and failed so badly to receive love in this world. And you're here thinking to yourself, I've done so many things, I've sunk so low, I've done things that I'm so ashamed of to try to find this love, and yet it's still eluded to me, but I find myself and I feel so broken today. How could a God ever, how could God ever love me? The good news for both groups of people is that you don't need to get 
God to love you. It's not about what you can do for God. It's, what, it's about what God has done for you. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that we know God's love because he laid down his life for us. If God is love, then we can know God and his love because Jesus, again, laid down his life for us. Anything that we do is in response to this, not to earn it. You don't have to make an offering to God because he laid down his life as an offering for you. You don't have to sacrifice for God because God sacrificed for you first. That's really important. But if you're tracking, the question then becomes, how then is God's love any different than the world's love? That's, that's a good question. How is God's gift to Jesus any different than Cain's offering? Doesn't the passage suggest that God sacrificed Jesus, but then there are these conditions attached? After all, he laid down his life, but there's this expected response that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then isn't God just like Cain when he rejected his offering, when we reject Jesus or when we reject him, doesn't he just get angry and not accept us and reject us? How is God's love any different than the world's love? And that's an excellent question. There's a lot I'd like to say about this for the sake of today's sermon. I'll just focus on one aspect of it. And it's this. If God had sent Jesus to be a teacher, a spiritual guide, a prophet to show us how to live in a godly way, and we unexpectedly rejected Jesus and murdered him and put him on a cross, in response, and in response, if that all happened and God rejected us and condemned us to hell, you would be right. God's love would be exactly like the world's love. God's gift of Jesus would be no different than Cain's offering. God's love, again, wouldn't be life-changing. But again, this passage doesn't say that Jesus was ambushed. It doesn't even say that he was murdered. This passage says that he laid down his life for us. God didn't send Jesus as a spiritual teacher. He sent him as a sacrifice. It was part of the plan, and that makes it all the difference in the world. Jesus says in John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. It's a paraphrase verse 12. This is what we did. When Jesus came into this world, we were just like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered Jesus. And why did we murder him? Because we were evil and Jesus was righteous. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that God knew who we were. He knew we were kings. He knew we were sinful and broken and lost. So much so that he knew we were going to reject Jesus and even murder him and put him on a cross. Jesus, the righteous one. Jesus dying on the cross for us is not a surprise or a plan gone terribly wrong for God. God knew that we would brutalize, betray, and kill his son, and yet he sent his son anyway. I back it up into practical terms. This is how the world teaches us to love. When we go Christmas shopping, we decide how much we're going to spend on someone based on how good they are or how important they are to us, Right? 
it would be weird if I spent more money on my barber's Christmas gift than I did on my wife's. My wife would be like, what is going on? How much we spend, the cost of our gift is an indication of one's value to us. We reward those that we love by giving them the more costly gifts. It's not how God loves. He knew that people like us, that when Jesus came into this world, we were going to murder him, and Jesus was sent anyway. God doesn't reserve his most costly gift to those who are the best to him. He gives the most costly gift to those who should be regarded as his enemies. Let me put it like this. Look, I love my kids, and I told a lot of people that it wasn't until I had my first son, Isaiah, that I kind of experienced a little bit, a little glimpse of what God's love is. So it's just such a powerful thing, right? But I gotta be, my love can't compare to God's love. Friday night, uh, we took Isaiah out. Well, the whole family went out because Isaiah got straight A's, and we wanted to celebrate. And we're like, you know what? You pick a restaurant. You can order whatever you want. We're going to celebrate this. Celebrate your hard work, your dedication in the first grade. But whatever. And it was a happy occasion. We were out there celebrating. And me being a Christian dad, me wanting to be gospel-centered, in the middle of it, I turned to him. I put my arm around him. I was like, I want you to know that I don't love you because you got straight A's. That you're my son, regardless if you get A's or F's. I was like, do you understand? He's like, yeah, I understand. You know what? That's not the whole picture. Because, yeah, it's true. If he gets A's or F's, he's always going to be my son. But if he got straight F's, we wouldn't have been out at the restaurant celebrating. We would have been at home doing workbooks and homework. There's a difference there. But on a cosmic scale, you and I, we got straight S. But Jesus came into this world and took our spiritual bankruptcy upon himself at the cross, and he exchanged it for his righteousness, his straight A's. So those who should be rejected can be accepted. So those who should be admonished can be celebrated. So those who should be treated like Cain's that they would be treated like Christ's. That's what the imputed righteousness of Christ means. So yeah, worldly love and God's love are both based on performance. That's true. The difference is worldly love is based on the performance of the recipient. God's love is based on the performance of the giver. No other faith in this world tells you that man killed God, and certainly no other faith in this world tells you that God laid down his life for man. And if God knew that you were going to reject and murder his only son, and he loves you anyway, you know that however you are today, God's love is available to you. It's a gift. You can reject God today. You can reject him a thousand times. But whenever that day comes and, you, and you're sick and tired of living like Cain and you're sick of making offerings to this world because Jesus, because Jesus laid down his life for us, you can know with great certainty that you can experience God's love and his favor because it's entirely based on what he did on the cross and not about what you have done in your life. You can have full confidence that you can come to God today 
and experience his love. God's generous gift of Jesus is how we know that God's love is radically different than anything we can experience in the world. Then we get to kind of the third point. We start talking about, well, how will we respond to this? How will we love people in this world? Or will we make them an offering like Cain or will we give them a gift like God? You know, the passage says we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let's not love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. And what, what, what he's saying is like, it's time to put up or shut up. Like this amazing, radical, reckless love of God that you didn't deserve Trading your straight F's for straight A's, it should have some impact on your life. See, it should change you somehow. We ought to, James is saying, or John is saying, we should lay down our lives for our brothers. And if you're not generous with what you have, how can you claim to know the generosity or the love of God? Because this is the thing, love changes you. And the, greater quali- and the greater the quality of love, the greater the change that has to occur. If you were going to ask me, what are some of the most life-changing relationships in your life? I told you, uh, yeah, you know, that girl that I dated when I was 14, that really changed my life the most. My wife would be standing there and be like, are you kidding me? Because this idea, the greater the love, the greater change it should affect in your life. And the Everything that, and and this is the thing that we have to understand about the love of God, and it's this. Everything that Cain killed for, Jesus freely gives to us on the cross. All the love and affirmation and validation that we were so desperately seeking in this world, it was given to us through Jesus' sacrifice. At great cost to himself, we have all that we've been hungering for and and this is the question shouldn't that change us somehow the gospel isn't that god gave you what you've been literally willing to kill for for free at grace cost to himself but free to us it shouldn't be that we just continue to live like cain's we continue to be selfish in the way that we interact with each other we continue to try to take and take and take from the people in our lives the greatest indicator if we have really experienced the love of God is this, do you love others well? And, and, and that, that change is deeper than actions. It's more than just about sharing your possessions with the poor or even donating a coat to this coat drive that we're talking about. There's this test to see if you actually have received the love of God and it's if you love each other well. I want to read from Matthew 25 to you, but again, Jesus is here talking about a test. A test. He says to these people, the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. 
I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did you see, when did you, see you a, a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. And so, the, again, we're, we're, we're trying to answer this question. Why did Jesus come into this world? And so, Cain's like you and me could be treated like Christ's. That's what Jesus' love accomplished for us. So the truest test for our faith is not if you become a more generous person or if you can do nicer things. Let me be clear. Christians do not have the monopoly on being nice. I have absolutely no confidence that there's any data that Christians gave more this last Giving Tuesday than non-Christians did. I know plenty of non-Christians who are caring and nice and generous and charitable. The true test of our faith is this. Can we treat the canes in our life like they were Christ? Can you treat other people in this world, people who might hurt you, people who might not love you back, people who might not thank you, the strangers, the others, the least of these brothers? Can you treat these people not based on what they deserve, but love them as if they were Jesus himself for no other reason than because Jesus loved you in that way? That's the test for us. Because if you donate a coat, you could just be donating a coat. You could just be doing it so you could tell people that you donated a coat. And again, in this passage, Cain's offering doesn't look that much different than Abel's. But the question is, are we loving people like Jesus loved us? Again, are we loving Cain's like they were Christ himself? So this Advent season, my challenge to you as we lead up to Christmas is, can, is this. Can you think of one person in your life who has kind of been like a Cain in your life? Someone who is difficult to love, someone who has rubbed you the wrong way, someone who has mistreated you and maybe even hurt you deeply. And try this test. Can you love that person like they were Jesus? For a lot of us, if we're honest, if we try to do that, we're going to fall flat on our faces. We'll get angry and frustrated and annoyed And honestly, things might even end up worse than they were before. And if that happens to you, remember this. What you do matters, but who loves you matters more. Loving people matters, but the fact that you are the beloved of God because of Christ alone, that matters more. You are not a failure, and the answer is not to just try harder or to look within yourself to love somebody better. The answer is this. You need to remember how greatly loved you are by God. 
Turn to the scriptures. Read things, you know, flip back and look at 1 John 3, 1 that says, How great is the love that the Lord has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Or, or, or pray to God and ask him to show you more of his love to you. Ask a Christian friend to remind you how greatly loved you are by God. And knowing how greatly you loved you are by God is the only way that you can love other people in a godly way. And for others of us, if we try to do this, a miracle will happen and somehow, some way, we will be given the capacity to love the Cains in our life like they were Christ in a way that we had never expected. And what the Word of God tells us is that when we love people this way, it's exactly this way that the world will see our God. It's by loving others that we and the people in our lives can best know and experience the love of God and that which he offers us. Let's pray.